Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles first to Mark chapter 11. We're going to start uh, in some golden text scriptures that Jesus told us about the subject of faith. I want to talk to you tonight about doubt, the great thief. Mark chapter 11, verse 22, and Jesus answering said unto them, have faith in God. Other translations say have the faith of God. Other translations still say have the God kind of faith. Well, all of those would be true and accurate. What would be the faith of God if not the God kind of faith? It's the only kind he has. So the faith of God is the God kind. For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Now notice right in the middle of that verse is the one condition, and shall not doubt in his heart. And shall not doubt in his heart. Everything about verse 23 hinges on, revolves around that one condition, and shall not doubt in his heart. Now turn with me over to Matthew chapter 14. Let's see some of this in operation, see how it works. Matthew chapter 14. We'll start reading in verse 22. And straightway Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship and to go before him unto the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is the Spirit. Now, the Greek word for spirit is the same word translated ghost. That's why sometimes it's translated Holy Spirit and sometimes it's translated Holy Ghost. So they thought they're seeing a ghost. So they said, It is the ghost, and they cried out for fear. But Jesus straightway spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer. It is I, be not afraid. Folks, can you think of any situation or any time in the Bible where Jesus ever appeared and said, Well, I understand why you're scared? You ever, can you ever remember a situation where Jesus appeared and said, uh, You've got good reason to be afraid? Every time Jesus shows up, he says, Don't be afraid. He said, be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. And he said, come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Please notice that that Peter walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore or why did you doubt? And when they were coming to the ship, the wind ceased. Now Peter sees, Peter along with the rest of the apostles, see Jesus walking on the sea. And Peter, there's something you've got to appreciate about Peter. Now he made a lot of mistakes. He made one here. But we have to be careful and not criticize him too much because he did walk on the water to go to Jesus. I think the criticism should be limited to only those who have also walked on the water. That leaves me out. How about you? But Peter, there's something about this guy. 
Every time he sees Jesus doing something, he either asks for permission or gets in there with him to do the same exact thing. And notice what he did. Peter challenged Jesus to challenge him. Lord, if it's you, bid me come to you on the water. He knows very clearly that if Jesus doesn't tell him to do it, he has no basis or foundation to be able to. So he said, tell me to come out there so I can come to you on the water. Peter, even at this early stage in Jesus' ministry, understood something about Jesus' words. He understood the power was in his words. Bid me come unto you in the water. If it's you, tell me to come to you. Jesus says one word, come. And Peter walked on the water to go to Jesus. Now, folks, what does the word come indicate to us? Well, it would certainly have to indicate Jesus' will. I mean, even if Jesus just said, well, I'm okay with that, come. Come still identifies the will of God. The will of Jesus when he was here on the earth as the son of God. So I want to drain this into your thinking. It was God's will for Peter to walk on the water. Now, so many times the church world has the idea that whatever is the will of God will automatically happen. It didn't here. No one can dispute that it was the will of Jesus. Therefore, the will of God, he said, I always do the will of my father. No one can dispute that it was the will of God for Peter to walk on the water. And he did. And Peter experienced a great miracle. But the fullness of the blessing of the miracle was robbed from him or taken from him. Notice why. Peter came down out of the ship and walked on the water to go to Jesus. Let's read again. Verse 30. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink. I've asked this and I probably ask this every time we look at this example. But what does beginning to sink mean? If you go out in your backyard, assuming you've got a swimming pool in your backyard, you go out and step off the edge of the pool into the water, do you begin to sink? Would anybody describe that experience as beginning to sink? Anytime I've done something like that, I've dropped like a stone. There's no beginning to sink at all. It's just sinking. And that's what happens when we step over into the water. How did Peter begin to sink? I want you to understand something, folks. His faith left him by degrees. His faith left him by degrees. It's faith that causes him to walk on the water to begin with. And that water is just as solid, just as firm a foundation as if he was walking on concrete. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. When he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. Now he's close enough to Jesus to cry out, Lord, save me. And Jesus reaches out and grabs a hold of him. But notice what Jesus said. Oh, thou of little faith. I don't know if you'll be able to accept this or not. But even little faith can walk on the water. Oh, thou of little faith. Why did you doubt Well, the answer is he saw something. It says he saw the wind boisterous. Now, you know as well as I do, 
that none of us can see the wind. Peter didn't see the wind. He saw the effect of the wind on the water. He saw that the waves were high. Well, we already knew that because the ship was tossed in the middle of the sea because the wind was contrary. The Bible's already told us that. Now, maybe in Peter's thinking, it would have been easy to walk on the water if the water was calm. But hey, anybody can do that, right? What did the waves have to do with anything regarding to what he was doing? Maybe he had to step up to a real high wave. Maybe he had to climb up a wave. I don't know, folks. I don't know exactly how it works. But I know this. I know that when he got his eyes off of what Jesus told him to do, he started to sink. When he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he said, Lord, save me. There's only one thing that could have caused him to to go under or to begin to sink. And that's if he quit operating, quit acting on what Jesus told him to do. Now notice there was no mention of fear in what Jesus told him. For example, if Peter said, Lord, if it's you, bid me to come to you on the water. Jesus could have said, okay, well, let me talk to you about this a little bit, Peter. First of all, you're going to have to make sure not to be afraid. You're going to have to make sure to keep your mind on me. You're going to have to be sure not to be moved by anything you see or feel out here. And under those conditions, then come. Now, that may be the way that we would do it. I think we would complicate things to such a degree that we'd turn this into 12 steps to walking on the water. But Jesus said one and only one thing, come. And since the one word come is the power of God made available to Peter to walk on the water, it wouldn't have mattered what Peter thought. It wouldn't have mattered what he felt. It wouldn't have mattered what he saw. It wouldn't have mattered anything. There's nothing, no condition, no circumstance that would have made a difference if he had continued to come to Jesus. But what he saw took his eyes off the word that Jesus had spoken and he began to sink. He began to sink. Now we can't say, nobody could say that he hasn't experienced a miracle because he is experiencing a miracle as soon as he's walking on the water. But he's robbed of that miracle by doubt. He's robbed of that miracle because he yields his actions To his feelings about the circumstances instead of the one word Jesus said. Peter could have closed his eyes and walked to Jesus and made it the whole way. He could have turned around backwards and walked to Jesus and he'd have made it the whole way. It comes down to one thing and one, only one thing and that is action based upon the word of God. And the one word he's got is Come. Look with me into another example. Turn with me now over to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 
Matthew chapter 13, verse 53, and it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed thence. And when he was come into his own country, he taught them in the synagogue, insomuch that they were astonished and said, Whence has this man this wisdom and these mighty works? In other words, they're saying, Where did he get this wisdom and where did these mighty works come from? Now, this is the example or the story, rather, of when Jesus is in, is in his own hometown of Nazareth. It's also identified in Mark chapter 6 and in Luke chapter 4. And Luke chapter 4, it tells us what Jesus taught. That's where he begins to teach in the synagogues in verse 18, saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me. He tells what he's anointed to do. One of those things is to heal. It continues in Luke chapter 4 account to tell us that Jesus said, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking the same works that we've heard you do in Capernaum do here too. Well, that must be these mighty works and mighty wonders that they're talking about. They've heard of him. They've heard of him. So he's teaching in the synagogue and the people are astonished at his teaching. They recognize supernatural wisdom and they recognize supernatural works that had been done by him but not in their town. Then they asked, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all here with us? Whence then has this man all these things? He's just like us. There's no way he could have this supernatural wisdom or this supernatural power because he's one of us. And they were offended in him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, save, or except in his own country and in his own house. And he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Mark 6, 5 gives us Mark's account of this. And he could there do no mighty works. Save that he laid his hands on a few sickly folks, a few folks with minor ailments. And he marveled because of their unbelief. He did not many mighty works there. Got a few folks with minor ailments healed. Because of their unbelief. Now let me ask you a question. Since Luke 4 specifically tells us that Jesus is teaching in their synagogues that he's anointed to heal. Can anybody claim that it wasn't God's will to heal the sick there in Nazareth? Jesus said that it was. Wouldn't make sense for Jesus to teach on healing and the anointing to heal that was upon him if that was not the will of God for healings to take place. Now again, with Mark's account, it says he could there do no mighty work, save or except he laid his hands upon a few folks with minor ailments. That means he didn't get any blind eyes open. He didn't get anybody crippled healed. He didn't get any leprosy cleansed. But the question is the same. Was it God's will to heal the blind in Nazareth? We have to say so. Yes, it was. Was it the will of God to heal the lepers in Nazareth? We have to say that it was. Was it the will of God to heal the cripple in Nazareth? We have to say that it was. So it was the will of God and Jesus was sent and anointed to heal the blind, the lame, the leprous, and all manner of sickness and disease in the city of lep- in the city of start to say the city of leprosy that's not good in the city of nazareth it was the will of god to heal the sick 
great and small sicknesses in the city of Nazareth, but something kept them from receiving the will of God for them. The Bible says it was unbelief. Doubt is the great thief. Turn with me to another example. Look at another one. Over in Matthew chapter 8. Beginning in verse 23. Here's another example of them on the water. And when he entered into a ship. His disciples followed him. And behold there arose a great tempest in the sea. Insomuch that the ship was covered with the waves. But he was asleep. And his disciples came to him and awoke saying, Lord, save us, we perish. And he said unto them, why are you fearful, O ye of little faith? And he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. But the men marveled, saying, what manner of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Now notice Jesus has already identified what his will is and what his plan is. Let's go to the other side. He didn't say let's go halfway and drown. Apparently at this point in time, they don't have a lot of confidence, a lot of knowledge or a lot of experience at least with the words of Jesus and the power in his words. And so when Jesus says, let's go to the other side, they assume that's just him saying, well, let's get there if we can. But something happens midway in their journey in the middle of the sea that causes them to believe that their end is near more so than what Jesus said about going to the other side. Notice when they woke him up, they said, Master, don't you care that we're going to die? Well, you know as well as I do, if the whole ship's full of people who's going to die, you've got to be awake for that. And Jesus said, Why are you so fearful, O you of little faith? Now, folks, I would submit something to you, and that is, if Jesus hadn't been with them, they probably would have died. The thing that saved them was Jesus operating by faith, speaking the words of making it to the other side. It wasn't their belief in his words that made it happen. It was the fact that he was there operating by faith. So notice in Peter's case, in Matthew chapter 14, Peter began with a miracle but was robbed of the great blessing of the completion of that miracle. Because he saw the wind and the waves and he was afraid. Here the whole boatload of people, all of the disciples were afraid because they saw the wind and the waves. But Jesus wasn't. He rebukes them for their unbelief though. Why are you so fearful? Now think about what Jesus is telling us folks. And this is so simple. It's almost a shame that we have to say it. But the problem is... We think we see it and we don't really see it on the inside. And maybe because it's so obvious, that's a hindrance to us to be able to see it. I don't know. But the obvious reality is this. God's word is with such power that it's impossible for it not to come to pass. Jesus said, let's go to the other side. He didn't say it was going to be a smooth sailing. He didn't say it's going to be an easy journey. He just said we'll make it to the other side. But here's the other important fact 
I think that part we understand. And we would say, well, yeah, everything Jesus said came to pass. But everything Jesus said came to pass not because he was the son of God. But because he was operating in what was known as the faith of God. Or the God kind of faith, which is the same kind of faith he tells us to operate in. Remember Mark eleven twenty three. For whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea. He didn't say whatever righteous man says it. He didn't say whatever man that's been living a good and holy and sanctified life says it. He said, whosoever shall say. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm all for righteousness. I'm all for sanctification. I'm all for living good, clean, holy lives. But that's not what he said the criteria was. That's what the devil wants you to think the criteria is. But Jesus said, whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea. And shall not doubt in his heart. Don't let the things, the circumstances move you to fear. He didn't say don't feel fear. He said don't speak it. Don't act on it. He said that man will have whatsoever he says. Let's look at another example. Where doubt robs people of the blessings of God. Matthew chapter 17. Here's a good one. Verse 14, it says, And when they were come to the multitude, there came to him a certain man kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he's a lunatic and sore vexed. For oft times he falleth into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to thy disciples, and they could not cure him. Now, if we go back to uh, Matthew chapter 10 and verse 1, it says that Jesus delivered to his apostles power, to cure all diseases and to cast out evil spirits. So they've already received the power and the authority to operate in exactly what this man has need of. I brought him to thy disciples and they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. And Jesus rebuked the devil and he departed out of him. And the child was cured from that very hour. Then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, Why could not we cast him out? And Jesus said unto them, Because of your unbelief. For verily I say unto you, If you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you should say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible with God. Well, that's true, but that's not what he said. Nothing shall be impossible unto you. Nothing shall be impossible unto you. Now, the, um, the original Greek in this, and it's translated this way in certain other versions of the Bible. The Spanish Bible, for example, has a real good translation of this. Where it says, the disciples tried and could not cure him. King James just says, we brought him to your disciples and they couldn't cure him. But other translations in the original Greek said that they tried and failed. They tried and failed. Folks, you realize that there were things that Jesus tried to do and failed too? In his own hometown of Nazareth where he could there do no mighty work, he tried and failed. And he marveled because of their unbelief. See, we've got the idea that Jesus knew everything in, in advance. And everything that he did worked magically. Because he was the son of God. 
But the reason that he knew that he couldn't do certain things because of unbelief is because he tried and failed. Jesus didn't have a faith meter on his sleeve. And every time he got close to somebody, he looked on his sleeve and said, oh, okay, that's great faith. This will work now. He operated the same way that we do. He laid hands on people and ministered to them. Some people received and some people didn't. The disciples came to him afterwards and said, Jesus, why couldn't we cast him out? Notice that Jesus said because of their unbelief. Now we, we meaning me, usually look at this story from the uh, Mark chapter 9 version. Where Jesus specifically answers the father and says, O faithless generation, how long must I suffer you? Bring him unto me. The father asks Jesus or says to Jesus, Lord, if have compassion on us and help us. If you can do anything, have compassion on me and help me. And Jesus responds and says, if you can believe, all things are possible to him that believes. Mark chapter 9 emphasizes the father's unbelief. But I want you to notice that in both accounts, the disciples come to him later and ask the same question. And the, and the question is, why couldn't we do something about this? Now, folks, let's think about that for a minute. If they're not used to casting out devils or curing diseases, that's a dumb question. We wouldn't ask why we're able to do something we've never done before. But if there's something that we're used to doing, and in their case because of Matthew chapter 10 and verse 1 where the authority to heal diseases and cast out devils had been given to them already. If they're used to doing that, then that would make sense. It would also make sense that he would bring them to the disciples. This man would bring his son to the disciples only if he knew that they were successful in getting results that were similar to what he needed. So when Jesus explains to them why they couldn't do it, there's got to be a lesson here for us to learn. And notice what he says. He says, because of your unbelief. Now, he does not explain what their unbelief looked like. He doesn't explain to them or to us what it was about what they did that was unbelief. And so for that reason, I had a hard time with these scriptures for a long time. But after I'd been with Brother Hagen for a number of years, I heard him tell a story that made a lot of sense, that seemed to fit this explanation. Brother Hagen said that in 1950, in one of the uh, visions that Jesus, one of the first visions that Jesus appeared to him, he told him about the healing anointing. And then he told him he's, how to minister it. He said, I want you to lay one hand on somebody's front and your other hand on their, their back. And he said, if that fire, that anointing, jumps from hand to hand real fast, that's the presence of an evil spirit. He said, if it doesn't jump from hand to hand, then it's just a matter of healing. And he said, if you'll minister that healing, then they'll believe it, then they'll receive and be cured from the top of their head to the soles of their feet. Well, Brother Hagin used that anointing in the way that the Lord told him to do it for some period of time. But it was about uh, less, well, it was less than a year later. I'm not sure exactly how long. But less than a year later, he was ministering in a small church. And there was a man that came forward to have hands laid on him to be healed, receive his healing. And he said, I don't know what the condition was, but he was stiff as a board. He said he could turn his head just 
just barely this much. But he said there was no movement whatsoever from his waist up. He couldn't move. He couldn't bend down. He couldn't twist. He couldn't turn. He couldn't do anything. Well, Brother Hagin said that he laid hands on him the way the Lord told him to do, one hand on his front and one hand on his back. He said that fire began to jump from hand to hand real quick. He said, well, I knew what that meant. That meant there was the presence of an evil spirit. So Brother Hagin rebuked the spirit, commanded him to come out of him, and then stepped back and said to the man, now see if you can bend over and touch your toes. Well, the man tried and couldn't do anything. So Brother Hagin laid hands on him the second time, same way, one hand on his front, one hand on his back. Fire began to jump from hand to hand real quickly. He rebuked the evil spirit again, backed up and said, see if you can bend over and touch your toes now. Man couldn't move. Did the same thing the third time with the same results or lack thereof. Brother Hagin's finally, after the third time, he's standing there and he's bewildered. He's asking himself, talking to the Lord quietly, you know, Lord, I don't understand why isn't this working? So he said, he, that, he told the guy, well, go on back to your seat. Made some excuse, you know, let's go back to your seat praising God or something, you know. Knowing full well that it hadn't worked. At least it hadn't worked the way that it had previously. So he's asking himself and asking the Lord, why didn't this work? And all of a sudden, Jesus appears. Standing right next to Brother Hagin. Brother Hagin said, I thought everybody saw him. I thought everybody heard what he said. And I heard what I said. But in reality, the only thing that... He, saw or heard was Brother Hagin. They didn't see the Lord appearing to him. But Jesus went through it and he said, I told you so many months ago that when you laid your hand on the front and the back of somebody and that fire jumped from hand to hand, the evil spirits would depart. Brother Hagin answered and everybody hears this saying, Lord, I know you told me that. And I told him to go, but he didn't go. Jesus said the second time, I told you so many months ago that when I laid, to lay your hands on the front and the back, when that fire jumped from hand to hand, it's the presence of an evil spirit to rebuke him and he'd go. Brother Hagin said the same thing the second time. Lord, I know you told me that. But he didn't go. That's what I'm saying. I don't know why he didn't go. Jesus said the same thing the third time. Brother Hagin said it was like fire flashed from his eyes. He said he would always tell the story. And say, I know exactly what Jesus looked like when he drove those money changers out of the temple. (laughs) Brother Hagin said the Lord told him the same thing the third time. I told you to lay your hands on the sick. And if that hand jumped from the, the fire jumped from hand to hand. Then it was the presence of an evil spirit to rebuke him and he would go. Brother Hagin said the third time, Lord, I know you told me that. But he didn't go. Jesus stomped his foot and pointed his finger at Brother Hagin and said, I said he would. And disappeared. And Brother Hagin said, I got it. This guy had shuffled himself down, halfway down the aisle, back to where he was seated, where he'd come from. Brother Hagin stopped him and said, Brother, come back up here. He turned around and came, on, came back up. Brother Hagin said, I was waiting on him, ready to pounce on him like a cat on a mouse. He said, this time I laid my hand on him, one on his front and one on his back. Felt that fire jump from hand to hand. He said, I commanded the evil spirit to leave his body. I backed up. He said, now, brother, bend over and touch your toes in Jesus' name. He 
He bent over and touched his toes and was totally free. Now, the difference was what the way Brother Hagin responded to what the Lord had given him to do. First three times, he said, see if you can bend over and touch your toes. The last time, he told him to do it in Jesus' name because see if is always the badge of doubt. Now, let's apply that to this story here. The disciples came afterwards and said, Lord, why couldn't we cast him out? Jesus said, because of your unbelief. Is it possible that they were doing something to see if there was a result? It's the only thing I know of that fits. And I have to appreciate the Lord for not exposing their unbelief. And telling us for sure what it was and why. One last example. That's over in Mark chapter 5. We'll start in verse 21. And when Jesus was passed over again by ship unto the other side, much people gathered unto him, and he was high, nigh unto the sea. And behold, there came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And when he saw him, he fell at his feet and besought him greatly, saying, My little daughter lieth at the point of death. I pray thee, come and lay thy hands on her, that she may be healed, and she shall live. And Jesus went with him, and much people followed him and thronged him. And a certain woman, which had an issue of blood twelve years, and had suffered many things of many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was nothing better, but rather grew worse. When she had heard of Jesus, came in the press behind and touched his garment. For she said, If I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. And straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that virtue or power had gone out of him, turned him about in the press and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said unto him, Thou seest the multitude thronging thee, and sayest thou, Who touched me? And he looked round about to see her that had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. And he said unto her, Daughter, thy faith has made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. While he yet spake, there came from the ruler of the synagogue's house certain which said, Thy daughter is dead. Why troublest thou the master any further? As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said unto the ruler of the synagogue, Be not afraid, only believe. Now you know the end of the story. He goes to Jairus' house. The daughter is dead. He puts everybody out, raises his daughter from the dead, and delivers him back to, his mom and his, back to her mom and dad. But I want you to notice in this, uh, well, what verse is it? Verse 36. When Jesus hears the word that's being spoken to the, to the father, Jairus, notice what Jesus said. He said, be not afraid, only believe. Applying that to the story where Peter's walking on the water, he's saying, don't sink. Don't sink. Be not afraid, only believe means don't sink. He's identifying that the father is at a critical point. What are you going to do? Now, a lot of times, most of the time, perhaps, we talk about the importance of our words. And our words are important for two reasons. One is, it's an expression of the faith that we have in our heart. With a mouth, confession is made. 
With the heart man believes and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation or any part of salvation that Jesus purchased. So confession is of utmost importance because it's the exercise of authority. But it's also something else. It's not always the only thing, but it's a means whereby you can act on what God's word says. So it's not only the expression of authority, it's action. In this case, he's not asking the father to say another word. He doesn't say, now, the situation's different. When you first came to me, she was just sick but not dead. Now she's dead, so it's going to take a different kind of faith. It's going to take a faith for miracles instead of faith for healing. We make those kind of distinctions, but Jesus didn't. Jesus just says one thing, and that is, be not afraid, only believe. In other words, don't turn loose of what you started with. Now, if we put that in Peter's, insert this into Peter's story, I want you to see the parallels. Peter heard the word of Jesus that said, come. Jairus heard the word of the Lord that says, I will come and heal her. Peter sees the wind boisterous, the wind in the waves, and he was afraid. Jesus tells Jairus, don't be afraid, only believe. In effect, Jesus is telling Jairus, stick with what you started, it'll see you through. He's not asking him to make another confession. He's telling him to stick with what he started with, the faith that he's already expressed. I remember a story, reading a story about John Lake. He was uh, on one of his ministry trips in another part of Africa, southern part of Africa. And he got word that his son was critically ill. And so he rushed as quickly as he could. He rushed to the hospital. He laid hands on his son and rebuked death. And his son revived and was healed. Just a miraculous, marvelous result and testimony. But some months later, he's out on the mission, mission field again. And he comes home, he returns home, and he hears the same story. Your son is critically ill. He's at the point of death. This time, Lake went to the hospital room and sat there, didn't pray, didn't rebuke death, didn't do anything. He walked into the room and said, okay, Mr. Devil, take him if you can. And he sat down in the chair and stayed there for three days without saying a word. Didn't pray a prayer. Didn't say a word. Jesus didn't ask Jairus to make a confession of faith. I think sometimes we make confessions of faith out of fear. We're afraid that if we don't say it enough, it won't work. Jesus tells Jairus, don't be afraid, only believe. And we have no record that Jairus ever uttered a word. Now, if the story was that Jairus said something that brought about the healing and the raising of the dead of his daughter, and the Bible doesn't tell us, and we have a right to challenge God's justice. But if this is the end of the story. 
And perhaps Jairus was like Brother Lake, who just set his jaw and stuck with what he's already expressed, the faith he's already expressed, and goes with Jesus to his house. In other words, he continues to act on the word come that Peter failed to do. If you think about it, the story in the Old Testament, Numbers chapter 13, where God leads the children of Israel to the edge of the promised land. Moses sends the 12 spies into, into the promised land. Ten of them come back with an evil report. Two of them, Caleb and Joshua, came back with a good report. Now, the evil report that they came back with was unbelief. They simply said, we can't do what God said we can do. The land God said is ours is not really ours, and we can't take it. Caleb and Joshua said, we are well able to take it. Let's go do it. Now, let me ask you a question. We know 40 years later, after the children of Israel spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness and that generation dies out, we know Caleb and Joshua take part to a great degree in possessing the promised land. Now, here's the question for you. At what point in time was Caleb and Joshua's faith the greatest? When they came to the edge of the promised land or 40 years later when they took it? I would submit to you they were just as much in faith 40 years earlier as they were when, they, when Israel took the promised land. But the unbelief of the people kept them out. Just like the unbelief of Nazareth kept the sick from being healed. Just like the unbelief of Peter kept him from receiving the greatest part, the greatest blessing of God's miracle, walking on the water. Who we surround ourselves with, folks, is critical. Because you can think you're the greatest person in faith there is. But you'll be influenced by others, of un- by the unbelief of others. People have died for going to the wrong churches. People have died because they've listened to their families. The unbelief of their families. Brother Hagin told a story of a lady that was healed in 1948 that he was familiar with in Oral Roberts meeting in Dallas, Texas. This girl was stone deaf. A girl, she was a lady, grown woman. She was stone deaf. They tried hearing aids and everything that they could do and just no effects whatsoever. But she came up in the healing line Oral Roberts laid hands on her. Her face lit up and everybody in the room could tell something had happened. He turned her around to face the crowd and whispered, stood about 10 feet behind her and whispered. She repeated everything that he said. He proved before everybody that it was a genuine miracle and that it was the real thing. Six weeks went by. And she was just as healed and just as well as, could hear just as well as anybody. But after about six weeks, her hearing started coming and going. And her family, members of Pentecostal church, church that was supposed to believe in healing, grew up in it, been Pentecostals for a long time. Their family gathered around, it was about Christmas time. Their family gathered around and they just all cried and wept and moaned and groaned and said, Ruthie, we're just so afraid you're going to 
lose your healing. Well, you know how that story turned out. Within a matter of a couple of weeks, she had completely lost her healing. Was right back in the same situation that she was in the beginning. Her family talked her out of her healing. Now, we shouldn't think it's a strange thing for symptoms to return. It's a very common truth. should be a very well-known truth among those of us that believe that the devil always tries to return to the house that he went out of. And he was testing her with her healing, with her hearing going in and out. He was testing her. All in the world she would have had to do was stand up and say, No, Mr. Devil, I was healed by the stripes of Jesus. The healing power of God was ministered unto me, and I refuse to receive this back. What a help it would have been to her if she'd had a family that could have encouraged her in that. What we believe matters and who, what, what the people that we associate with believes matters. Amen? Don't let doubt rob you of God's greatest blessing. Back to Peter. We'll close with this. Lord, if it's you, bid me come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. There was enough power in that one word, come. Peter experienced one of the greatest miracles that we can imagine how much more power is there in the word of God that says Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses and with his stripes we are healed let's pray Father we thank you so much for your word thank you that we have authority over doubt and fear thank you that we do not have to yield to it in any way whatsoever And so we make our confession. Say this after me. Jesus took my infirmities and bore my sickness. And by his stripes, I am healed. Jesus, you said, what things soever I desire, when I pray, believe that I receive them and I shall have them. I desire healing for my body. So right now, I believe that I receive my healing in Jesus' name. I thank you, Lord, that you'll see that I have it. Amen. Now lift your hands and thank you because that's true. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Oh, Pastor Mike, that just seems so simple. It's too easy. Well, how hard was it when Jesus said, come? There wasn't a flash of lightning and then Jesus spoke the word come in some loud booming voice. It wasn't a word that sounded differently than any other thing Jesus ever said. The power is in the word, not the circumstances surrounding the word, the word itself. The healing power is in the word of God that says Jesus took your infirmities and bore your sicknesses and with his stripes you were healed. Amen. Say it with me. Thank God for my healing. Amen. Well, thank you so much for being here with us. You're dismissed.